Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking again with Jason Littlefield. Jason is the founder of Empowered Pathways and a co-founder of Free Black Thought. Hey Jason, thanks for coming back on. Hey, thanks for having me back. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you again. Um, so how you been since the last time we spoke? Things have seems to have gotten a little bit crazier. Things have gotten a little crazier. Uh, the, the things that concerned me then uh, concern me even more so now. Uh, some interesting, I guess, updates since last time we spoke. Last time we spoke, what was happening in the background uh, was that my, my profession, my job as a social and emotional learning specialist was being completely, <clears throat> completely colonized. Uh, my job description, they wiped that clean they wrote a new job description that included having to put forth the ideology and having to teach that as truth and having to believe in it. They actually wrote that into the job description and I had to reapply for my job. Uh, and I was guaranteed to get that job, but I could not in my good heart and conscious work towards eroding uh, individual sovereignty and autonomy and putting forth this ideology that was negatively impacting our social and emotional well-being. So I've spent the last year trying to elevate that conversation and figure out how do we immediately impact the culture because if we don't impact the culture and the hearts and minds of the people in our culture right now, then this idea of the individual that came up during the enlightenment will be lost for good. Yeah. I don't know. That's a I lot. Say, yeah, I, I mean, like just the one last thing, like, I don't know if I want to say lost for good, but yeah, it's for a be while. Lost for, yeah. For a while. Like I, one of the things I'd said a little while back, it was after I read David Deutsch's book, uh, the beginning of infinity. And he talks about pockets of enlightenment throughout time. And I said, you know, I don't want another Deutsch in 500 years or a thousand years writing another book like that and talking about us as a pocket of enlightenment, you know, at one point or other that kind of ate itself up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, well, what I think what concerns me is on the not too distant horizon, you know, we do have the fourth industrial revolution and, this economic idea of stakeholder capitalism uh, staring humanity in the eyes right now. So I'm just wondering if those two things are accelerated, uh, perhaps it might be lost. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people take enlightenment values and, you know, those individual freedoms and those individual rights, I think people take them for granted and it's, it, it also, I think it depends on where you are. Like if you are mm -hmm. in a secular, you know, quote unquote, Western democracy, like enlightenment democracy, like I think in those places it's being taken for granted. But if you're in a place like Afghanistan, you know, they want those things and they need them. Right. It, you know, it's being taken for granted so much that, People still think the, you know, you hear people talk about both sides of the argument. Uh, 
they still I think people still think that both sides represent an aspect of that enlightenment classical liberal society. But what's happened is that the sides have actually shifted philosophically, but people are still playing a political divide and have no idea that just that their basic principle of how they get to live their life and that that is what is under under attack and that future generations have a threat of not living under. Yeah. I mean, I want to like kind of tie this to something you'd said, you said your, your profession had been colonized. You know, so when you're talking about that, are you, so that was like, how did it change? Like how did SEL change from when, what you were doing originally? And then when you said when it became colonized, like, because I mentioned something like along those lines about something like CBT. I'm like, okay, CBT is supposed to give you the tools so that you can, you know, fight your anxieties and everything on your own. If there's something very serious, then you can go back to therapy, but it's meant to give you a set of tools so you can, you know, be fairly autonomous. But if you give the people the wrong set of tools, it's going to make things worse. And I'm just wondering, is that like the same kind of thing that happened with SEL? That's exactly the same thing that happened to SEL. And it was a, it was, it was a slow burn. You know, this, this past year, I've seen a lot of people online and a lot of like, oh my God, SEL is, is bad, you know? Uh, And that was something that I started to question on my own team around 2017 or 2018, because I noticed that the the types of trainings that we were attending were starting to shift. Uh, we, I remember after one training, I said to a colleague, I was like, uh, philosophically speaking, th- this is a, a, some sort of Marxism, some sort of Maoist, you know, I was a I was a history major student and a uh, history teacher for a while. So I, I recognized what what was happening. And I said, you know, we really we really need to talk about our tools. I heard you just mention, you know, if we're using ineffective tools, I said, we really need to to look at our tools because and I came at it from a from a professional from a social and emotional learning specialist, from a, oh, wow, as a professional, this is what I'm seeing. Uh, I noticed that whenever you dissolve the individual into a group stereotype identity, it reinforces our in-group bias. All humans, you know, we have, we have, we lean towards an in-group bias and we are all wired survivally for the capacities of prejudice, aggression, and cruelty. And I noticed that dissolving the individual and putting us in groups against each other was strengthening the human capacity of prejudice, aggression, and cruelty, and strengthening that in-group bias especially adding layers of shame and resentment was like, this is wreaking emotional havoc on people and it's destroying relationships 
And it has nothing to do with increasing human potential and getting and building relationships. This is a this is a political philosophical approach and it's damaging. And I, tr- I tried to have that conversation from 2018, 29, all the way up until 2020, when, as, as I said, my job description, you know, the whole job description was wiped away. And that came from the national organization CASEL, which is the Collaborative for Academic and Social and Emotional Learning. They're the ones that decide and dictate what happens uh, in social and emotional learning curriculum K-12. And I've addressed, I've addressed them. I've asked to speak like, Hey, can we, can we have a meeting to discuss this? Because the ideas that we're putting forth are wreaking havoc on human beings, social and emotional well-being. And those, those calls have gone ignored Uh, However, I am working with schools and continuing to work with people that want a humanity-centered social-emotional learning framework because, A, humans are social-emotional creatures, and B, in this moment in time, we're in the midst of a social-emotional crisis. So we we need assistance, and we need to be using a different set of tools rather than the political tools. Yeah, I mean the. I know you'd mentioned like Maoist or Marxist. It, I don't really have an issue with that, but I mean, I just try to use collectivist. It's just, you know, yeah, it, it's like it rhymes with it. It's got shades of it. It's you know, mm-hmm. and follow this stuff back. Um, I mean, you know, John McWhorter and James Lindsay compare it to religion. I've compared it to. I've like found similarities with Islam, and you know, it's just so. Like I just. In my mind, I, I just want to. Like, it's it's just it's just a lot cleaner. I don't want to get into that other debate about whether it's Maoism or Marxism or whatever. It just you know, collectivism covers it. I agree. Like, I agree, hundred percent. Like something you'd mentioned as well. It just it bothers me, and it's, I see I see the similarities with the conversation around Islam in this as well. It, people are still turning their wheels. We're still arguing about whether it's Marxism. We're still arguing about this. We're still arguing about. Okay, I mentioned James Lindsay. I like James. I get along with him. There's some things I disagree with him about. But right. you know what? If James came out with something insanely egregious, then whatever, fine. I'd say, you know, I think you're wrong. But for the most part, like all like people that I see are like, oh well, I, I don't want to be like him. I can't I can't speak out against this because of you know, because of people like James Lindsay. You know, it was the same thing with the Islam debate. It was like, oh, we don't want to let bad actors you know, take over the conversation and they spent so much time talking about that, that they did let, you know, truly bad actors take over that conversation. And then they yeah. just painted everyone who was in that conversation with that brush. And it's the same thing that's happening here. You're having a secondary or tertiary argument about what the important issues are, and you're not actually dealing with the issues you should be dealing with. And it's just, you know, we, at this point, it should just be, yes, this is bad let's fix this and sorry i'm gonna ramble but like mike you talked about both sides there's no both sides there's there's multiple sides here and you know like my side is enlightenment values mm-hmm. i want to push those and i'm just looking at yeah i'm worried about the overcorrections i think there's a lot of overcorrections coming from you know other sides and it's you know the pushback against this but 
we used to have institutions that we could trust to be rational and sane to push back against you know the exegesis of any side or anything that was coming up but those institutions now have gone to for the most part to this woke extreme and so we don't have anything left and that's where my worry is it's like you let this stuff because you were worried about who was a good actor and a bad actor and what the right way of discussing this was instead of just saying this is wrong let's fix this you let itself get in you let that you know this ideology get itself entrenched in most of our institutions like most of our sense making it, and it's it's been corrupted by this you know um what i wish is that individuals within all of those institutions that it and in society would realize and discuss that essentially what is under attack now are those enlightenment values. Like if we could have a values and principles conversation versus a policy or opinion conversation and reestablish what core values are important to us and guide our policies and procedures around those enlightenment values, we would be better off. And that's, that's the message that I'm hoping to do through Empowered Pathways and through Free Black Thought is to bring attention to what is happening here is just this simple principle enlightenment idea of the individual. That is what is under attack. And I do believe that all individuals want to live their life how they see fit without hurting people. And they want that for future generations. But the ideology and the institutional gatekeepers are preventing those conversations from happening. I believe that if we could say this is bad, what is something else that we can do, and we start doing that, then we'll be better off. And I've been really focused on trying to offer offer the solution that I've created. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, because you mentioned you're working in schools, like, and if you can try to get that in, like, that's, this is where my worry is with a lot of this stuff is, and you're talking about the Enlightenment values, but, and we can talk about, you know, there's things on like, you know, fundamentalist Christian side, the evangelical right, all that, but they're not in control of a lot of these things. So what I'm worried about is like, if you take CRT, it's explicitly anti-enlightenment. And if the mm-hmm. curriculum is being based on that and, you know, people are, I mean, now it's commonplace to, to hear that treating people as individuals and not as a member of a group is racism. I've been hearing that since 2018 from that was one of the ideas that I pushed back immediately on in my working group. So, I mean, you'd mentioned castle and how they're, you know, framing K through 12 and stuff. And I'm worried about this in that because Kate, the one example I use all the time, because it was, I think one of the most highly publicized one was the Dalton um, Academy in New York city, Dalton school, right? So K through eight, like, I don't know if you've heard about this or read about it or whatever, but this was in 2015. Um, like, like I said, it was written about in like, you know, New York times, New York post, you can find it in a few other places. They took their kids, 
they took the kids from grade three to grade eight. They sent letters home to all with all the kids, the parents and said, okay, let us know what race your child identifies with. And this was especially important for mixed race kids. And then for uh, 45 minutes a week, they took the kids apart, put them in quote unquote affinity groups. And then they go, they told all the kids of any race, except for white ones that they were oppressed and that they'd be oppressed by white people. And that, you know, how, you know, they're, they're starting off from like, you know, so far back and they're, they're, you know, they're just basically telling these kids they had no future. And then they told the white kids that you've oppressed all these people. You've done all this bad thing. You've caused all these issues. And like I said, this is from, you know, starting from grade three within a few months, all the kids, like not just the white ones, but all the kids started spouting off ethno-nationalist rhetoric they were going online seeing what's good about my race what's bad about the other races and they were you know go online and you're gonna go down some weird rabbit holes and you know, yep. end up with like richard spencer or end up with you know uh what's with the, the the guy from uh like farrakhan or you know things like that right like in and i'm like okay you've done this you know there's other been other studies where they took people you're talking about group in group and out group Okay, you're the you know you're the chocolate ice cream team. You're the vanilla ice cream team, and, and even with that, you had people starting to treat each other like very cruelly. Right. That's and, I, and that's I'm just like, yeah, like you're you're ruining kids. You're turning kids like they're going to be maladjusted. They're going to be finding looking for an external reason why they're not doing well, or they're going to be feeling like they're being singled out as the cause of everything. Like I, I use the example of uh, there's that African proverb, you know, the child that isn't embraced, the child that is embraced by the village will, you know, feel the warmth from the fire when he burns it down. Like, I'm like, you're telling kids that the village doesn't love them. You're telling them that they're, that, you know, everything is out, out for them or that they're the cause of all the evil. And right. Like, you know, they're easy pickings for anyone. They're easy pickings for, you know, white supremacists. They're easy pickings for, cults they're usually picking for you know gangs anything yeah yep. it's like that's what worries me it's like we're if enough people believe that enlightenment values are evil and racist and they were created by white people just to uphold white supremacy there there's nothing left to fight for and there's no one left to fight for it right and you know what if what if that those ideas are lost what if the writings and the uh, over time what if that those concepts that john locke wrote about what if those con- people don't even have access to those concepts 20 30 50 years down the road you know and so let let's look at if you're a kid let's look at that oppressed oppressor label if if you have been, if you have been given the oppressed label and you believe it, what do you do? You, and the only thing I can think of is you lash out seeking revenge or you just give up. And if you are given the privileged, the oppressor label and you believe that, then you either wear that like a badge of honor and you continue to oppress people 
or you give up. So the ideology is, you know, it's purposed to remove autonomy. So if you get half the people giving up and not doing anything, and then the other half are clashing, physically fighting, that's the perpetual state of society. And a healthy, a healthy society cannot set itself up in a way to where half of the populace has given up and then the other half is engaged in physical and violent conflict. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, could you just take the, 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 the three, three shootings recently that were highly publicized. So there was mm-hmm. the one Buffalo. There was the one just the other day in Texas. Uh, what you've, Uvalde. Uvalde. Okay. I couldn't. And then there was the one in California, uh, I was thinking it was the same weekend as the Buffalo one. It was in the Taiwanese church and it was a Chinese person who was because of China's position on Taiwan. Right? Now, like I'm not defending any of these shooters. I'm not defending, but I'm just saying that the one in Buffalo and the one in, in Texas, they were both 18 years old, I believe. So look at 18 years old, go back to when Trump got elected. So 2016, you had, they were what, uh, 12 years old mm-hmm. in 2016. Like well, I started, when I started looking at this, there's about 18 States that had, you know, CRT based curriculum from K through 12. And so, and then forget the schools. Like, are they getting it online? Like it's just, you know, everywhere you look, you were being reinforced with this stuff. You're looking in the media, you know, article, article after article about what's racist, what's not racist, how white people are, you know, uh, white people are stopping people of color from going hiking. Like, really? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, like, I saw that article. No, I saw I mean, that article. But but you can trace these back to like 2012, 2013. There was uh, articles in Portland, but how like as early as like 2010, as far as I can tell, but how, you know, biking, like cycling was racist. And I'm like, come on. Yeah. 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 Every... Wh- so those articles and the all of the trainings and things that I attended over the years, I, I realized that every virtue, every value, every philosophy associated with not just the Enlightenment, but all ideas that promote the individual. Aristotle ethics, you know, just simple, simple, basic Ideas were perceived and being presented as white supremacy, racist or whiteness. And that is the exact same tactic that Trotsky used in 1927 to label people that spoke out against communism. They were they were identified as racist. So this notion of not speak, I'm not going to speak out because I'll be considered racist is an extremely old tactic that kind of uh really ultimately led to a, a lot of uh genocide okay, but i'll take it quite a few steps further back than that so you talked about okay are we gonna lose this thought are we gonna lose what you know Locke wrote what Payne wrote what mill wrote and you know i, I worry about that so if you go back to the golden age of islam so that's roughly from 800 to about 1100 or 1200 
like that in that roughly that rough period. So around uh, the end of the ninth century, there's a guy that came about called Al Ghazali. Al Ghazali was given the title "The Proof of Islam," and they and what was said about his writings was if you lost the Quran and the Hadith, so the Quran you know, obviously and the Hadith are the saying and the doings of the Prophet. If you lost those, you could almost rebuild the entirety of Islam just by Al Ghazali's writings. Okay, so like that's how this guy was revered. He was you know. okay, and I mean there were other thinkers at the time as well who were revered, and but he. As far as a, a religious aspect, his writings on that side. And he wrote this book called The Incoherencies of the, of the Philosophers. And he took to task the Greek thinkings that were being pushed by thinkers of the time. And it was all being done in Babylon because, uh, oh, sorry, Baghdad, because Baghdad was the crossroads. And, you know, like it was in the near East. So you're people getting people from the Far East, you're getting people from Europe, you're getting people from Africa all meeting there. And they were changing ideas. And he, he just took it apart and like basically his idea was he was a Sufi and one of the tenets of Sufism is everything is done for the praise and the glory of Islam and Allah. Now he took that to an extreme and he said that we don't need to study. We don't need new mathematics. Everything that we have is enough. We don't need any new philosophies. Everything that we have is enough because you only need to glorify that which is in Islam. After he wrote that book, there were other thinkers. There, I think it was, I believe it was Averroes or it might have been Avicenna who wrote, you know, the incoherencies of the incoherencies, basically a line by line refutation of it, you know, or, or passage by passage refutation of it. But Al Ghazali's view was had the ear of the caliph. His view took over. By the time the Mongols sacked Baghdad in the 1200s, that viewpoint of we don't need to go out and get more information had taken over. So when the Mongol, like they came in and sacked Baghdad. They, they destroyed the library. Uh, it was called the House of Wisdom. Um, and they, they completely destroyed that. And the knowledge then, you know, Chinese, Indians, whatever, took it back to where they were. Some of it went to Europe. Um, and when the, when the Mongols receded and the caliphate started up again, Al-Ghazali's viewpoint took over. So hmm. thinkers of that time from that period like I'd mentioned, I haven't seen an Averroes, but there are so many others. They were banned in the Middle East. And they're still, to this day, they're banned in large portions of the Middle East. Like, you can't get that writing freely and openly. You have to, you know, go search for it on the internet and, and, and you know, dig it up. But their writings made it to Europe, as did mm -hmm. Al-Ghazali's. And Al-Ghazali's writings made it to um, um, Aquinas. And Aquinas, when he wrote how to, like, some of his rules are how to burn heretics at the stake and things like that. He, he took all his, all these writings and they informed him on that. Whereas the other ones who also came into Europe, you know, they were talking about the Greek traditions. They were talking about individualism. They were talking, you know, they were, they were discussing, you know, you had Aristotelian philosophers, you had Platonian philosophers. You had, you know, they were discussing all this thing back and forth. And, I'm not saying it's the only reason, but it was part of the reason that you got enlightenment thought coming into Europe because they preserved that knowledge while Europe was in the dark ages. Right. And so that's very true. And you, I mean, if you look at the middle East to this day, there's a really great organization called um, uh, ideas beyond borders. And they're, what they do is they translate, I think, they're translating Wikipedia articles, but they're also translating books on science and philosophy and books about the enlightenment into Arabic, Farsi, 
Kurdish and they're making it available for free. And uh, during COVID, they were doing a lot of announcements and putting that out and letting people know like, okay, this is what you need to do. You know, they were translating all that. I mean, there's still that statistic. Um, I, and this is an old one, but it might've changed, but this was from, I think 2006. There were more books translated into Spanish in one year that had been translated into Arabic in the past thousand years. Oh, wow. Okay. So when you're talking about people losing thought, like ideas beyond borders, when they're looking to do their translation, they had to come up with a term for secularism because there was no term in the Middle East for that. There was no term in Arabic for that kind of thinking because it had been wiped out. And sorry, I, I don't mean to go on so long about this, but one of the no, things no. also you'd mentioned was a colonization. They use that. They use post-colonial thought. So when they want to push back on enlightenment values or they want to push back, they said, oh, this is colonizing from the Westerner. Instead of celebrating that, you know, Westerners got this from, from the Middle East. They got it from Persians and North Africans and Arabs. And these are the people who were studying in Baghdad. And that's where the West got, that's what kept these ideas alive. So it's not Western thought coming back in. It's, you know, the Middle East and North Africa region bringing back their own thinking and but they use the, they use the you know the post-colonials in the west the you know i mean it's going down into south africa as well they wanted to like was it last year the year before uh they wanted to put out black physics because you needed a black physics because the, the other physics was a white centric physics i'm like physics is physics so right I mean, it, 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 this has effects everywhere else and yes if we lose it we lose it and like i said you know a thousand years in the Middle East, you had what two, three Nobel prizes come out of those countries. Like you know, it it has an effect. Yeah. Uh, so you touched on something that's that's really important for us living in this time to understand and consider that those Enlightenment values were influenced by uh, Islam and other parts of the world that those are the ideas that are meant to advance our lives that are meant to advance our personal well-being that those are the ideas all over the world that rose to the top and that our shared history as a human species has put forth some amazing ideas and it's up to this generation to preserve and pass on those ideas and to question what is happening in our institutions. Because if, if, every, if everybody or a lot of people would say, no, thank you, we don't operate like that. Uh, we do believe in rational thought and compassion and kindness and individual liberty and finding ways to promote and protect an individual and individual rights. We're not focused on constantly destroying society. You know, I heard you mention, you know, South Africa, yeah. you're in Canada. I get emails and things from people in Britain like this is happening in my, in my small town. What do I do? We see what's happening in New Zealand and Australia. You know, if, the the world's kind we're kind of in a in a uh being conquered phase it seems yeah it's i mean whatever the quote goes back to aristotle what i think people attribute to uh, um 
the guy who started the Jesuits. Um, but anyways, you know, give me the child until he's seven. I'll give you the mat. Right. So if you start them young and you're teaching them this stuff, it's they're getting this. They're again, I, I compare it to a fundamentalist religion. I say like, you know, K through 12 are being turned into woke madrasas and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that every kid who goes to a madrasa is going to join ISIS or the Taliban. It's, if you let the kids alone and they were in that religious milieu, because I mean, it, you know, when you look at like a, a Muslim country that's under Sharia, you have that, th- you have that religious stuff blasted at you all the time as well. It's not just in school, but if the school system was actually teaching rational thought and critical thinking, you'd still have, you know, a certain percentage that are going to go extreme, but you'd have m- more that won't. But the thing that, I, f- I think you'd have more of is right now with the madrasas, you have a core that no, they won't do that. They won't go out and kill apostates. They won't go, out, but they will support it and they mm-hmm. agree with it. And they think it's the right thing to do. Whereas if you taught that rational thought, you know, they might be faithful, they might be pious, they might be whatever, but they, they don't agree with that aspect of it and they will question it. And that's, that's really what you need. You need that willingness to question you need that willingness to look for the other things because i mean again i'll go back to the muslim world like if you look at apologists for islam that come out of there and people who are trying to push this stuff they've you know in the last 10 years they've been getting more and more exposure to it because of the internet but they didn't even know which questions to ask because they were never exposed to that they were even never exposed that there was another way of looking at it right so Mm. it was so that's the kind of stuff I worry about. It's if we lose this now, there's nowhere else in the world. And when I say we, I'm talking about, like I said, liberal, you know, like enlightenment built societies, like there's nowhere else in the world that is pushing this. And it's, you know, ideas beyond borders is able to do that in the middle East because it's a, you know, a friend of mine who started, he's an Iraqi refugee came to the U S and he wants to help his, his, you know, like his, his home country. Um, or is like, you know, ex, ex, like the country of his birth and he wants to help them. But if the enterprise dies here, he's got nothing to help them with. Right. You know, like he translates some Steven Pinker's books. If Steven Pinker's books are all banned and there's nothing for him to translate, what's he going to do? Right? It's, it's like, that's I'm like, yeah, I don't want to have to wait. Well, whatever else we won't be around, but you know, society shouldn't have to wait another three or 400 years for these ideas to be rekindled and then have to be hard fought, bring back the victories and then, you know, get to where we were, you know, in the late nineties, like, right. Well, and so the fourth industrial revolution and the advent of, or the, the merging of inorganic matter into our organic matter, you know, the merging of man and technology once that happens, w- even in 300 years, w- will will humans be autonomous? You know, that's a and nobody knows. Nobody knows that. That's why I think it's really important to latch on and to reconfigure around our, you know, those Enlightenment classical liberal values, because it, once it's lost, it might be lost for good and it was only not even what not even 300 years in existence and i heard you mention the 
the nineties, that was kind of a, a sweet spot of that vision actualized. Yeah. Okay. That's why I mean, I mentioned the nineties and I, again, I looked at it from when I just started reading, like, you know, like I got out of university in the mid nineties. So I got some experience with postmodernism and some experience with postcolonialism. I mean, I did a poli sci degree, so I got exposed to that, but I left, I left in the mid nineties. I, you know, I, then I went and worked in it. I didn't have anything to do with this. So, but when I started reading CRT and intersectionality and, you know, some of the Derek Bell stuff and, you know, Audre Lorde, all that. And I, I'm reading that stuff. And then you look at when it came out in universities. So you always had like African-American studies and that kind of stuff. You always had like a certain aspect of this, but it was, I think it was 89 when Kimberly Crenshaw at a conference coined the term critical race theory. And that's when, you know, like all the books under that title started coming out, but intersectionality as a framework got introduced into the Academy, you know, somewhere between 89 and 91. Like you can go back and kind of check. Like, I mean, Crenshaw's first paper on that was in 89. Then she did mapping the margins in 91 you know, and then you had, you know, Peggy McIntosh and all these other people writing about intersectionality from there. But those first few people or those first people that got that intersectional framework and started coming out with graduate degrees and PhDs came out in the late nineties and went into the workforce. So that's kind of when that cultural shift started happening. Mm -hmm. So I, I use that, you know, and I've heard John McWhorter say the same thing, like we got need to go back to a 97 way of thinking. And he kind of specifies that year, but I'm like, it's somewhere in the late nineties, the early two thousands, like, you know, that, that shift happened. Like you were saying, it's, it was a slow burn. Like it's slow, then it's really fast. Right. <laughs> you know, right. And you so, know, I, I hold that 1997 year, uh, in special reverence as well. I didn't know that he'd, he'd, uh, he'd mentioned that, that specific year, but I, I heard you, you know, the thing about intersectionality and in Crenshaw's writing, she specifically prioritizes identity over humanity. So when an aspect of our identity is more important than our shared humanity, there will always be conflict. Yeah. No, no. I mean, if, I mean, you, read the, yeah, if you read the first paper, uh, I forget what it's called. Um, it's intersections or something or whatever. It actually laid out, you know, what she's talking about. And it, you know, there was some sense to it. It was fa fairly rational. It was a second paper mapping the margins. When you start reading it again, she's talking about some important stuff at the start, but then you get near the end. And that's what she says. We need to get away from this liberal ethic. We need to get away from this idea of individualism and we have to have an identity based politics. I mean, she, she maps it like she, she maps it out in that paper. Yep. And there's no plan. There's no, once we erode the liberal order, what do we build? There's no, there's, there's none of that. There's, and I, I just, what I'm having a hard time really understanding is how people are still believing, advancing and accepting this destructive ideology. I don't know. It's just because it comes wrapped in such nice language. Like, uh, again, it's what Jonathan Rowe called, like, you know, the humanitarian threat to liberal science. It's, you know, it's anti-racism or we're fighting transphobia or we're fighting homophobia where, you know, mm -hmm. it sounds good and it's, 
and then something Carl Sagan said, you know, like it's they, people want a reassuring fable instead of a harsh truth. Truth, and that's that's you want the the truth might not be pretty, but it's going to help you out the most. And this this idealistic sense of oh, you know, we're going to make a more equitable, or it's going to be anti-racist. I mean, um, it, it's like that they're. they're it's a sugar-coated poison pill that they're giving you that you take it. And it, by the time, by the time you you're, you're into it so far at that point, you're either indoctrinated or, you know, you're, you're a pariah for not accepting it. Yep. Yep. And that's what, that's what I'm hoping to uh, disrupt in our culture. And it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a constant struggle. Yeah, I know, but there's, I mean, uh, again, I, I like. I think it's yeah. You'd mentioned the, the the technology aspect of that. It's and you know the way I look at it is so. Take if you want to talk about social media, but a lot of these people who got into tech. I mean, they were obviously they were, they were you know like I work in tech. Whatever. They were geeks and nerds in high school, right? They were geeks and nerds, and they wanted to make a better world. And then technology up until the, you know, the communication revolution, technology was about making lives easier. Mm -hmm. So you have a washing machine. It's a hell of a lot better than a washboard and scrubbing your clothes. Right. Right. It, it saves you some time. You can do other stuff. We took technology and we did the same thing. Like this is where, this is like, and I, this is my issue with the technology aspect of it. I, yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to talk about embedded microchips or anything like that, but it just up to this point, like, you know, go online or you're watching TV and there's an ad for how you can get your mortgage, you know, on the internet in 10 minutes and how easy that is. I mean, shouldn't you want to take a little bit more than 10 minutes for your mortgage? I mean, it's a pretty right. important thing, right? Like right. we've, we've made everything so easy and we're just, whatever is going on in schools, that's one thing. But if you make people's lives so easy where they don't have to actually look into something, they don't actually have to look for it. Like I joke around and I said, it's the fault of uh, travel mugs because they're basically just sippy cups for adults. So like, you know, when adults say they need a sippy cup, they're not good for anything else. Like, you know, like <laughs> but like it's, but you've made everything so easy that that's my issue with the technology. Like even Google, you know, you made, Oh, I just saw it on Google, but you didn't teach the people how to validate that information. You just gave them something and it was yeah. easy. You gave them what you thought they wanted instead of what they needed. And it's like, I think, I think that's where we have to slow ourselves down and get back. Like if you want to stop this, you know, technological slash industrial revolution coming along the way, like you have to get people to unplug and get people to take a step back. Like, you know, I bought my nephew when he was six years old. I bought him a little iPad mini and I kind of regret it now. I think that no, you know, maybe kids don't need all that stuff until they're a little bit older and they can, you know, go out and play in the mud and get dirty and build a fort and do whatever and figure things out instead of, Oh, how do I do this? I'll just go online and look. And it's, it's not mm -hmm. the same. Like I, I, there's my, my issue with the technologies with that. It's, you treated it, you treated information the same way you treated a washing machine, you know, something quicker and better and faster. And it's, it, 
you lose a lot there. Well, and, and it's made us very comfortable, very complacent and reinforced our tribal uh, echo chambers. So maybe that's why we're having a hard time breaking free of the ideology and moving beyond it. Well, I mean, I, I, okay, I, I see some good things happening. That's some pushback, but I'm worried about that as well. And I'm worried about it for the same reason that what happened with the political correctness stuff in the late eighties, early nineties. So when Netflix says, okay, if you're woke or whatever, they didn't use the term woke, but you know, this is, if you want to get away from, you know, they fired a bunch of people. They said, we're no longer going to go along with this. Uh, you know, whatever Musk, uh, you'll even have Bezos right now speaking out against uh, ESG. Um, but a lot of people are like, oh, see, the tide is turning. I'm like, yeah, you're the tide is turning right at the front end. I mean, if I can go back to technology, but the back end is still screwed up. Until right. you fix up that back end, it's just a it's a war of attrition. Like it was the same thing in the with the political correctness stuff. Oh, see, we pushed back against this nonsense. It just went back into the academy. It went a little bit more underground. And then, you know, like I said, by the end of the 90s, early 2000s, it started coming out, going back into the administration, going back into, you know, the, creating the departments of equity and all that stuff. And then the, the speech codes and all that came out of it. And we're, we're where we are now. Yep. And so, you know, I, again, maybe I read too much of it. I'm just kind of like, you know, I have, I have a certain bias by I'm seeing it everywhere, but it goes back to the, you know, the, the idea of the long march through the institutions mm-hmm. and, you know, they're, they're ready for that marathon. Like it, for them, it's on a sprint. And so if they, if it gets pushed back now, then we'll just go back to the institutions and we'll just get in there deeper and we'll come back with it and it'll be reborn under a new name. Well, I don't know if it can be pushed, pushed back or stopped. Just, just seeing how it's taken off in Germany and in Great Britain and and everywhere, seeing how that it is taking off in every single Western democratized nation. You know, it's not just. And sometimes I wonder if you guys are experiencing it more than than we are in the states. Oh, uh, yeah. We're. I mean, we're we're so I mean, far I've, gone. I feel like y'all, y- y'all are ha- have accelerated it oh, oh, beyond no. what we have. We are one hundred percent okay. So in Canada, this stuff was it wasn't up until about I'd say around two thousand. Well, two thousand fifteen was when Trudeau got elected, but around two thousand thirteen, you could start seeing the CRT based curriculum encroaching in some parts of Canada in some schools in K through 12, right? Like I don't want to make it sound like it was, it was exploding. Like it was everywhere in 2013, but you started seeing the rise of it. But before that, even going back to the late eighties, it was more of a post-colonial lens that, that we were looking at. So it was, you know, the first nations, we'd colonize them and things. And I don't want to, you know, take away from being like, I, I lived in Inuit communities. I can tell you about all the horrible stuff that was done but it was just kind of wallowing in it. But now when you had that CRT stuff infused in it, so it was going back to in the late nineties, we had this thing in our government and it was, no one really paid attention to it. No one really did anything about it. It wasn't, 
followed through, but you had to have a gender-based analysis for legislation stuff. But it was, it was basically intersectionality, right? Mm-hmm. You had to look at things, but it was just kind of something in the background. It was like a nice little piece of wording, but no one paid attention to it. It wasn't. In 2015, when Trudeau first got elected, he changed it to gender-based analysis plus. And it, and it had to have it. And so you were like the fisheries department would have to do a gender-based analysis on fishing quotas. If they're doing alleged you know, policy on fishing quotas, like, I don't know how that works. Um, but the government themselves, when they put out things like bill C-16, where, you know, self ID, if you didn't identify someone by the gender that they identified as. So if I called you a sir and you identified as a woman and you wanted to be identified as ma'am or she or her, you know, I could technically be brought up to the human rights council in Canada. Wow. And then in Trudeau's election in 2019, uh, he got, he changed our ministry of multiculturalism into the ministry of diversity, inclusion, and youth. And the mandate of that government, that ministry is to make sure that all of government, all policies, everything fall under like they have an anti-racist secretariat to make sure that that all government ministries and all government departments are being anti-racist and it's so i mean we're well ahead with you know it's against the law if you don't affirm a child's gender it's or anyone's gender like if you and so therapists are worried that if you try to do anything but gender affirmation care they could lose their licenses uh, it just just recently pediatricians where because of the long wait for kids to get uh, puberty blockers and this and that, they're, without even a consultation, because it's taking so long to get a consultation at a gender clinic, uh, pediatricians are just writing a prescription for puberty blockers. I mean, yeah, we're, I mean, we're much farther along than you guys are. It's, you know, it's in fact, one of the major banks in Canada put out a job posting where it was only Indigenous people. Um, our national broadcaster you know, advertises for like, we'll hire anyone except for white people. Like, I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, we're, it, it's awful up here. So we, so I think people have to think and just like, is this the world? Is, is this what we want to build? Is this what we want to pass on? What are these ideas going to look like accelerated and in my mind it looks it looks awful in my mind people are miserable and governments have absolute control to me it's not even so much that governments have absolute control it's that okay going back to those mass shootings these these people were made to be so unstable that they were, they were being, they were, they got indoctrinated really easily. Mm-hmm. You're seeing, I mean, I follow a lot of teachers and I'm, you know, the amount of violence in schools right now. And it's, you know, for policies that said, okay, don't punish black kids. Don't send them on suspensions or whatever, or, you know, it's, because it's racist. If you do, because the disparity makes it racist and all this stuff, like you're, you're seeing so much of this. You're seeing like the people are going to call out to the government for protection. It was okay. So this was in Haiti uh, when Aristide. So the, I, 
this was in like the early 2000s he wanted to cement power and so what he did was he released and i mean this was done in the middle east and everything as well he released gangs from prison and so the people got scared and they asked for police protection so the police were able to crack down so i i'm not trying to say that there's a mastermind like uh, trudeau is not a mastermind okay let's let's but if every school, every individual is thinking like this and they're pushing this stuff out and there's more violence in the streets, people are going to get afraid. And when anyone offers them a solution, they, oh, we'll take more control. We'll bring it in. They're going to go with the person they think is going to be able to best control that. So it's not so much the government taking it away. It's just that this stuff is going to scare enough people so that they'll want someone to come in. They'll, they'll willingly give it away for their, for, for their security. Right? Yep. You know that uh, a lot of uh, states released a lot of prisoners during COVID at the onset of COVID. If you remember that, speaking of the person that released uh, the prisoners, but that, that happened in the States. I don't know if that happened up in Canada where prisoners were released from jails at the onset of COVID. I don't remember hearing about that, but I mean, there was so much stuff going on. Right. I, I right. missed it, but yeah. No, but I mean, like the releasing the prisoners. Okay. Again, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we can talk about prisons in the States. Like I, everyone who's in there for like, you know, simple pot position, get them the hell out of prison. They don't right, deserve to right, go. Right. So if, if they were releasing people like that, okay but i mean were they releasing murderers and rapists and you know like you know serious violent criminals that's a different story um but like i like i said i don't know what was going on up here with that but it's just again it's just for me it's the the mentality of okay like like Trudeau does it all the time. Our government does it all the time. The when the truckers protested up here, I mean, right away they're all racist and misogynistic, and people just bought it and go along with it. Uh, that's one thing in Canada. I mean, we you know we, there used to be a joke in the eighties that the only thing we're proud of is we're not Americans, and all anyone has to do is say, um, you know, that's American style politics. Oh, you're using American politics, or you're using Trump politics. Why are you bringing American politics up into Canada? But at the same point they're pushing CRT. I'm like, well, CRT is based off American legal you know, jurisprudence. Like who's bringing American politics into government now? Like, right. That's very true. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, we're, we're kind of screwed up here, but like, I, I still, the K through 12 stuff, like with the SEL, how are teachers doing this? Like teachers are not qualified social workers and therapists and counselors. Yeah, I know schools have counselors, but like, what's your thought on that? Like, I'm just like, again, I'm, I, even if they were the best tools in the world, if the person's not qualified to use them, right. You know, like, you know, you give the best steel and everything to some guy who's never been a blacksmith in his life. He's not going to make you a good sword. Like, you know, like it's right, right, right. Well, so SEL is, it was originally, and I believe it's still intended to be a what we call a tier one intervention, which means it's something that is for everybody. It's non-invasive. It's non-specific. It's just general 
let's you know self self reflection, uh, self management, some breathing techniques. Uh, how do we create opportunities for people to get along and build relationships? It that's what it's supposed to be. But with with the shift to the intersectional ideology, people are teachers are seem to be taking it to a a different level to really try to tug at those you know feelings of shame and resentment to really try to try to get that activated some some people feel like they're you know if if they make people cry or if they make people really like distraught about their beliefs especially if those beliefs are the classical liberal beliefs, then they feel that they have done something good and beneficial. Uh, essentially, people are using that, the tool of SEL in a very, in a destructive way. They think that they're using this thing that is building, but it is destroying. They are actually destroying personal well-being and the ability to form cross-group trusting relationships. If I view somebody as my oppressor or somebody that I am oppressing, I'm not going to be able to really build a strong, positive, trusting relationship with that person. So the intersection, intersectional world is not only breaking down the individual, but it is preventing trusting relation cross group trusting relationships and it's a divide and conquer political strategy Keith, it's a divide and conquer and like i agree with what you're saying but one of the things that i really don't like about it is i mean it's it's counter to reality okay you know when you have a large percentage of you know, Democrat voters who think thousands of black people are killed by police every year when the real number is like 18 or something like that, or 20, let's just say, but you know, there's a huge gulf there Or Bill Maher was reading these stats the other day. So or a few weeks back. So, you know, whatever, take it for whatever it's worth, but it was something like 50% of Democrats thought if you got COVID, you were going to end up in ICU. Hmm. Now the real number is nowhere near that. You know, like they, they were like, if you got COVID, you were going to go into the ICU. I mean, the, and that's like half of dem registered Democratic voters were, were thinking that. A man giving birth, I'm sorry. Like, you know, when the AMA falls behind the line that a man can give birth and they're denying basic biology, why should I trust them about a COVID vaccine? Why should I trust them about anything else? Like, it's, people are being untethered from reality at the same point as they're telling they're being told to look for group divisions and they're not, you know, they, they, you know, and they speak in terms of inclusivity and all that, but they're actually looking for ways, like you said, to divide and conquer. I mean, but you know, like no one knows what's real anymore. And that's, I mean, like, you see the you know, old conspiracy theories, this and that it's like, okay, Again, go back to any place that's had censorship. Go back to any place that's had control. Yeah, Conspiracy theories come out of the woodwork because no one knows what to believe anymore, so they're going to believe whatever feels good to them. And it's like, it, 
you're throwing people so off balance and so off kilter that, I mean, you're causing a lot of issues and it just, you know, and again, it's, it's, you know, if it's being done by teachers, you know, you go to a, a seminar for a weekend and you come back and you're like trying to inst- institute this stuff in your classroom. Like you're not going to succeed. And it just like, that's what I'm like. I'm, I'm worried about that future generation because you know, when I'm an old, and I'm being selfish. When I'm an old fart, I want my doctor to worry about what's wrong with me, not what the color of my skin is or whether or not I identify as male or female or any of the other 72 genders for Christ's sakes. Right. Well, that's, uh, that's the world we are building. And that's why I'm uh, working, uh, to disrupt it in the culture. Uh, you know, my, my focus and my, my plan, my solution idea is to intercept what is happening in the culture. But I don't know if we're going to be able to do that or not, but I've got a couple of things uh, that we're, that we're going to try and see if we can energize people in the culture and people in their workplaces and people in, in school communities. Just curious. Are you, like I know you're working with Free Black Thought and Eric Smith to you know with with your um, with your version well with with the initial original concept of SEL and trying to put that out there. But are you also looking at working with uh, groups like Fair or maybe Counterweight or anything like that to you know try to get more traction in institutions? Or do you want to like? Are you- uh, I will say I, I'm I'm presenting at a at a conference for Counterweight uh, in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, fair hasn't really showed a lot of interest uh, and i'll just kind of leave it at that uh but i am i am hoping to find uh organizations and people that are pro enlightenment and pro the individual and believe in sovereignty and autonomy and how can we increase personal well-being how can we increase human relationships? How can we unite the 98% of us that really believe in the individual? How do we break down those barriers? So I'm, I'm definitely looking for organizations, people uh, to channel my energy into preventing what is happening in the culture and not preventing it's all it's already happened. The train has already left the station. So I'm hoping to meet with those that, that are interested in stopping the ideology before, before it becomes deadly, because as you know, collectivism, however, it's worded and branded, there is always a deadly end. There's always a deadly end to collectivism. So I feel that if we can reflect on that and begin to disrupt and dismantle it in the culture, perhaps it won't reach that deadly end this time. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer on Sunday morning, but I just curiously, if you can turn back, you know, some school districts, you you know, I I don't think you're going to be able to fix the entire public school system in the u.s like that's but i mean if you could turn back a few but would you also be looking at like you know there's plenty of teachers who were fired or had to resign because they oppose this stuff 
would you be looking at maybe like okay, giving them the tools so if they wanted to start little pod schools and neighborhoods and things like that where parents were like you know we're fed up we don't want to send our kids to these schools they don't like the other options they want to start up a pod school or things like that like would you want to do that or would you want to just solely focus on like trying to get the organizations and the institutions working I would I would assist there as well. Uh, really, any any body, any organization that is looking for tools and resources to push back in a productive, in a healthy, in a pro enlightenment, a pro compassionate way, those are people that I'm interested in uh, working with and putting putting forth our our message. I believe that we're at a, in a moment of an existential crisis and that it is up to us, this generate to, to act properly now. And I'm looking to facilitate those opportunities. Yeah. I'd be going back to the, like, kind of just going off that, but like going back to the religious thing, like, you know, John McWhorter. So I can't remember what, where he was being interviewed. I think it might've been for a reason, but he was talking about like, you're seeing the birth of a new religion and it's, I'm like, okay, I forget the name of the emperor before Constantine, but he was the one who made Christianity, like you could practice it in the whole, in the Roman empire, but he didn't adopt it. It was Constantine that was the first one to adopt it. Right. It's just always, I'm like, that's what Biden is. Biden is the emperor before Constantine who is allowing this stuff to go in like, whatever we call it, the empire, whatever, but go through the U S Yeah, and then the next you know, the next one is going to be the Constantine who embraces it. And, and it's just like, like I said, we've got it, you know, we've got it with our liberal party. We've got it with our, well, there's the liberal party is our far left party now, but we've also got the other part. It was, they were called the new democratic party. They were actually a workers party and, you know, blue collar party, but now they're all focused on race and they're pushing this stuff instead of focusing on class. Our green party is the same thing. It's just, you know, like our government's fully embraced it. Um, and what you'll notice, I'm, I'm sure you see that those, are, it has shifted away from the worker. It, this ideology oh. is shift. It is a bourgeoisie ideology. Like it is, it is something that is believed by, by elite people and they are using it to put their thumb down on the common person. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, th- th- this is something again, goes back to education. It goes back to when I was in school is they started pushing that thing. Everyone had to go to college. And I remember you know, that, you know, like, I don't think, you know, it was blue collar work and manual labor was so looked down upon. And it's like, Oh, it's the low people that do that. And that mentality has grown and grown and grown. So yeah, they, they, you know, they don't want to be, you know, it's like, oh, I, I'm going to be unclean if I touch these people, right? If I go near them, I'm, I'm going to get besmirched. It's, it's, it, but yeah, I mean, you need like, these, like a lot of these people haven't built anything and they don't know, you know, I get my food from the grocery store. It's like, no, you know, like they, they don't, they don't know how to fix you know, they don't know how to like change a light fixture. They don't know how to change a tire. They can't do like the basic stuff. And it just, but they sneer at the people who do this work because they think it's beneath them. And it's just, you know, 
so that's a good example right there of how the ideology, the the philosophy of this has damaged the individual. People can't do, can't fix, can't they ha- they don't have those technical, they don't have those skills anymore. And I remember the early 2000s was that everybody goes to college push. I was I was teaching and I disagreed with that. I was like, this is not, and I, I taught at a, at a trade school uh, where students would graduate with some sort of certificate in welding, nurse practitioner, uh, cosmetology, woodworking. And looking back on the early 2000s, the, everybody goes to college. That's when they were really teaching the ideology. That's when they were really teaching this in the college. So we were forcing everybody to go get this indoctrination. But even in the late 80s, like I graduated high school in 87, and we were, you know, if you don't get a college degree, you're not going to get a job. The only jobs you're going to get are going to be manual labor, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm not saying the universities were as far left back then as they are now, but it was still there like that. The seeds of it were born about back then where like you need that college education. You need it. And I mean, okay. I got a, you know, I got a poli sci background. I work in it like, okay. I, thanks to my education, I do well on jeopardy, but that's about it. Like, you know? right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But yeah. Uh, look, like I said, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. So if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, if you want to have any last words or if you, you know, words of encouragement, even, cause I think we're kind of like a bit of a downer. <laughs> oh man. 